As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Great, Mark. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. Happy Victoria Day, Walker. Happy Victoria Day. I am not accustomed to Victoria Day. I am from Quebec. For about 20 years, we've done Journée Nationale des Patriotes. But before that, and, and what I will always remember is Fête de Dollar, which is strange because I grew up on the West Island close to Dollar de Zormo, and for me, the person... Is Dollard de Zermo, but the the town is Dollard. Gotcha. Not not big on British holidays over in Quebec, are they? Uh, this was a holiday invented specifically so that it could compete with Victoria Day. They stuck it on the same day. Similarly, the moving day in Montreal, overwhelmingly, I don't know if this is true, the rest of the province is on Canada Day. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is a podcast about board games. <laughs> We're going to talk about what we reviewed last year, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Eurus. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And our topic this week is what prompts a purchase. So with that in mind, Walker, what did we review last year? Exactly one year ago, Mark, we reviewed a game called Tapestry by Stonemeyer Games. That we did. And we played it so, so many. Actually, I played a game very much like it the other day. It's called Railroad Inc. It also has lots of tracks. <laughs> Yes, I had high hopes for Tapestry because I enjoy some Stonemeyer stuff, although a lot of it's aggressively mediocre, and more of it's aggressively mediocre since the release of Tapestry. Yeah, a lot of the stuff will come up later. It had, it had great table presents. It looked fantastic. It came with great little figures and plastic and came from a retrable, I'll say it the way I want to. I know that. <laughs> I know that to be true, and yet I can't help but try. It's weird because there's subsequent stuff. Pendulum was broadly panned, but I enjoy Pendulum. I think it's yeah, perfectly enjoyable. We only played Red Rising the once. 
<laughs> I suspect that's as many times as you want to play. I'd try it again. Yeah, but... I, would, I wouldn't mind trying it again. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, I, it's just, you know, you should try a game more than once just because it, you soured on it and thought it was the worst thing you've ever played. <laughs> well, see, that's just it. And, Some... and you woke up in the middle of the night in rage screaming about this game. Sure. Doesn't, you know, reflect properly. You should try it twice. You know, okay. Just... <laughs> yeah, so we have not played Tapestry since. It has an expansion out. Yes, plans, employees. And more tapestry, I guess. Yeah. And so we have not had, I, I have not spared a thought about tapestry no. since. It quickly left my collection. Good riddance. So with that in mind, we're going to talk now about the games we played last week. Well, we get to play Street Masters Aftershock again, or rather Street Masters generally, but it's in the huge Aftershock box. And we tended to gravitate towards some of the newer stuff just by accident. And this is after playing a very brief, very brutal loss to the Hattori clan. People mentioned on the Patreon, actually, that we are supposed to mention what fighters we played as. So at the time, we played as Renee and Ronnie. This time, we we settled up again. And this time, you played Renee again. The first time, yes. Yes, yes. I didn't try Ronnie again. I tried the Dawn, who was in the second redemption pack, who was interesting. We came close to winning. We did? We did. And then we tried again. We pummeled him quite oh, yeah, quite we, th- thoroughly. We we beat the boss uh, within an inch of his life. But, of course, <laughs> close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, as, as is the saying amongst the Street Masters circuit. And we lost. Then we tried again. I swapped out to probably one of my favorite characters, namely Grill. Still didn't work. We lost even worse that time. I even we tried it. We even had the thing where we'll take lots of hit points. So I took the giant panda, and there was Chan Chan. I took Chan Chan, and there was swathing and bear hugging, and and it just wasn't enough. I do have thoughts at when we try it again, but we'll see how that pans out. And that was Street Masters, designed by Adam Sandler and Brady Sadler, and put out by Blacklist Games. Mark was nice enough to introduce me to a game called Fast and the Furious, and this is based off a movie IP. And Oh, is it? And it gives you this feeling of a movie. I wasn't quite sure how to talk about this, but I think I think I might have... The tank was unstoppable. Donmuth realized the only chance they had was to slow it down and hope the man would show up to handle this. As a familiar pink sports car rips past him, he feels relieved his good friend's son was there to back him up. But how? How were they going to do this? It's a bloody tank. Not only that, but it's got an escort of armored SUVs. Wait a second. That's it. Their cars were too light. We'll use their own protection against them. Dominic quickly puts his plan into motion, executes a pit maneuver on the lead SUV, sending it hurling under the tank treads. Seeing the turret slowly turning in his direction, Dominic retreats behind the tank. Just in time, the sun forces another SUV to the rear. Dominic slams on his brakes, sending the SUV hurling through the air and crashing on top of the tank, exploding in a horrific fireball. The friends share a quick glance and a smile, but their victory is short-lived as the tank fires. The shell explodes just in front of Sun's cars, launching it through the air. Dominic feels his friend is truly lost, but just then he spots Sun hurling himself from the burning car, landing not so gracefully on the roof of a nearby SUV. Hearing the impact, the occupants start blowing holes in the roof. Sun reaches into the driver's window and cranks the wheel, sending the SUV crashing into the side of the tank. Just as the tank treads devour the last of the escorts, Sun leaps onto the top of the tank. The plan has failed. Even though the tank is heavily damaged, there is nothing left to throw in its way. 
Or was there? Dominic and son, eyes lock. Help was not coming. Both realize what must be done. Dominic punches the gas, roars to the front and slams on the brakes. One last was that Fast and Furious fanfic? <laughs> How was that, Mark? Was that good? Did I did I capture the essence of our game? I guess. I mean, I, I'm not very familiar with the original franchise. I'm a huge fan of Mr. Vincent Diesel Esquire OBE, but I'm not particularly conversant in, conversant in the specific instance you're talking about. All that I know is that it has all your favorite characters from the movie franchise, like Guy Who Drives Fast, Blue Car, and Orange Car. I'm glad you got an initial level of meaning as from to it. what happened during a game. That was like that was that we 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 brake tested cars and they oh, yeah. flipped up and crashed into the tank. And then at the very last turn of the game, you sacrificed your car so it could crash into the tank with me on top of it. I thought it was quite an epic cinematic moment. I mean, it's very cool. It's it's a lovely little toy. I'm not too sure about the quality of decision making involved. <laughs> no, but one of the th- cool things is by Prospero Hall. There's usually a couple of flourishes that differentiate Prospero Hall from you know a, a lazy cut, cut and paste job. And the bit that I quite like is that every round in Fast and Furious, a new stunt is going to be made available, and it's scenario specific. There are three scenarios in the game: one where you're taking down a tank, one where you're stealing from a semi, and one where you're trying to destroy a helicopter and a sports car. I am told these correspond to things that happen in movies. And if you satisfy the conditions on the stunt, then you get a bonus and you proceed towards your victory conditions. But they're also just general ways to proceed towards victory conditions. And they're nice little missions. We like little missions here, whether they're contracts or little missions or whatever. Give you little bennies, give you a little bit of direction. And it helps that these things are cool in that they set up these neat little exchanges. You don't drive around a track. You present what looks like a stable bit of track, but you're assumed to be moving fast. So when something is wrecked at the end of the round, it just moves over to the left because that's how they decided to represent speed. But there are important physics lessons to be learned from Fast and Furious. I, I assume that these are also physics lessons that one learns from the movies. I, I have not seen them either, so I, okay. I have no idea. Okay, well, uh, so uh, let me just give you a, a, a pop quiz here, Walker. When an object is in motion, and it is then sent flying into the air. Does its speed, all things being equal, remain constant? Yes or no? No, it goes much faster, apparently. There you go, exactly. It goes much, much faster once it's in the air. That is how you can slam on the brakes and cause an SUV yeah. to gain ground exactly. over yes. something. When you hit a vehicle yes. with as much force as it takes to launch it in the air, yes. it can't but help increase in speed. Well, when, when, when you hit it from its front. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, second question. When you are driving a car, and for you know average everyday reasons, you then need to get on the roof of the car. This is what I'm worried about this game, is it might give the wrong impression about how to drive a car inside the car. I'm more worried about the fact that our youth might not otherwise know how to take down a tank on a highway. This is true. These are important educational lessons, but to get back to the original question, Walker, don't dodge the issue. You're driving a car. What happens to the car when you're on the roof of it? It, it drives itself somehow. Well, it slows down a bit. A bit. It stays very straight. <laughs> oh, very straight. Well, you're not, you're not moving the steering wheel. Exactly. Why would it turn? <laughs> Great observation. These are lessons that we have learned in Fast and the Furious. But look, all of these stupidities, I think, are probably, and I, I mean this in the highest possible light, are probably evocative of the stupidities of the movie, and at the very least, contribute to fast flowing game, game flow. Because you can jump in and out of cars, and you're wrestling with people on the back of other cars while everything's moving at a very high speed, and you're flying your car into a helicopter. I don't know whether they did it first in this franchise or in Die Hard. I'm not sure who can claim the particular patent on that little maneuver. Anyway, 
it, you're mostly just rolling dice to get successes, and you're moving little plastic cars around, and they're, the, the components are great. I mean, as I say, there are three different scenarios, and each scenario entails its own li- lovely little bit of minis to represent what you're trying to take down. I was pleased. I, I enjoyed it. Since yeah. we played it ourselves, I played the other two scenarios solo, so there you go. Yeah, Like I said, it it has everything that you would think a Fast and the Furious game has and plays thusly. Except celebrity likenesses. I, I thought the cards looked pretty close, as close as they could get without having to pay them much, much money. Well, that's just it. It's a fascinating art, right? I would love to talk to an artist and, and see what their process is, because what you have to do is you have to draw a picture that looks like Ludacris, but not enough like Ludacris so Ludacris can come and say, where's my money? Or the same thing with all these other people. And some of them are more famous than others, like Mr. Vincent Diesel and Ludacris, and then there are the other people who are, you know, those guys. I, I have no idea how an artist would approach this challenge, but anyway... This is another solid design from Prospero Hall. It is a lovely little toy, and the toy factor is very, very high. And you do get to do some fun stuff. You never really feel very clever, but you do get to set up some spatial stuff. And it's co-op, so you get to set up your partner for some interesting things. Yeah, they they set up like the cinematic moments, right? They give you these really cool stunts to do, and then you figure out how to how to work it out. And then, yeah, then cars blow up. All of that having been said, there are no Mustangs, so one out of ten literally unplayable. So true. I also got to play Imperium the Contention again. Imperium the Contention is the card for XE, but not really kind of game by Gary Dworetsky at Contention Games. And I played three players this time because I was curious about how it would feel multiplayer. The designer and publisher say that four player is the ideal player count, but four players weren't to be had, so we played with three. And I have to say that I was pleasantly surprised... I was somewhat optimistic that the way the score works would encourage offense, discourage turtling, and prevent the A fights B and C wins problem. And to a certain extent, that is true. And so I was pleased with how dynamic it was. One of the things that Imperium does away with that a lot of other 4X games have is there's no pinning. Largely on the basis that A, there's no pinning in space, and B, you need to be able to strike at everyone's holdings at any given time. And so you have to be very, very careful about how to defend things and also how to make incursions on other people's territory. Now, there are some ships specifically that pin people. There's one faction called uh, the Meccan who have a variety of ships that pin, and they are very, very, very powerful. But, you know, they're rare and they don't show up all the time. And so that encourages a certain fluidity. Now, with multiplayer games, and this is something, Walker, you don't have any experience with, there is... Basically, Mercatol Rex in the middle. It is called something else here because, you know, it's not Twilight Imperium. It's Imperium the Contention. And it is the very, very valuable planet that you want to fight over and it's hard to take. The problem is, and I, I don't have enough experience to comment on whether how, to what extent this is problematic. It's also a shipyard. So if you make the rush to the middle and devote the necessary resources to conquer it, suddenly you have a thing that everyone needs to take from you. But they're building their ships a couple moves away so that they build a ship and move out there. And when you're being assaulted, you can build ships in a shipyard even if there are enemies in orbit. So what happened was I grabbed the central thing very quickly. It fed into what I wanted to do. I was a faction that liked to get political favors and influence. Not so much about holding territory, but more about generating influence. And the central planet generates influence. So I figure, okay, well, I'll put out a couple of cards that help me with influence. I'll grab the central planet, see if I can get a quick win. So I made the early push, and so other people started showing up with vast fleets of incredible death. 
But all I'd have to do to defend my central holding was build a puny ship in the middle, and it would just forestall their ability to take that system from me. Now, in hindsight, there are things they could have done, right? We were not playing optimally. This was first play for Huey and Louie, second play for me. Obviously, they could have then gone after my other holdings, kneecapped my ability to produce anything, taken points from me in the process, etc., etc., etc. But in terms of the ability to defend that central planet because it's a shipyard, that made me a little bit nervous. But I want to keep playing it. I really like it. I, I, I love the faction differentiation. I like how quick and to the point it is and how fights and skirmishes are really encouraged from the get-go and there's no turtling involved. And the economic aspects are just robust enough to make sure you have to worry about spending things but not so crippling or all-encompassing that it feels like an economic management game. And it's a, in a lovely little box. I'll be talking about that again later. And so I've enjoyed my second play of Imperium the Contention. I'm looking forward to more plays. I would really, really like to be able to play it with four because, again, that's that's the noise that everyone says it is. I might even be willing to try the solo campaign because there's some extras that you can get to turn it into a solo game. I just like how it works. It's a, it's a, it's a cute, fun, forexy kind of thing in the same mold as, uh, mold as Warpgate or Quantum, but sufficiently different to warrant its inclusion in my collection. Yeah. And so All the ships look very cool, and the way they give them the, the abilities, they all make sort of sense. You know what I mean? It's not these you know outrageous things, and they're all very different. We got to play a game from last year, which is called Four Gardens, designed by Martin Drozel and put out by Korea Board Games. This is a very... You want to say minimalistic because there's no board and your your player board is just this little tiny strip <laughs> with holes in it. But that being said, it's got this giant four-level tower in the middle of the table. And essentially, it is very much managing your inventory because you only have four slots unless you, you know, purchase another slot. But even then, you got to make sure you're building these panoramas and you're playing these cards that are telling you how you take your inventory in. You're either starting at the bottom of the tower working up or starting at the top of the tower working down and you sort of have to figure out how to get the resources you need and get them out to the cards so you can fulfill these contract panoramas. The game works largely by virtue of your inventory limit because if it were just a question of amassing vast quantities of resources, it would be borderline trivial. But as it is, you get to a position where, well, you really want water. Water's in the middle of the tower so you have to make sure that either the top of the tower is relatively empty, so you're not full up of inventory by the time water comes around, or vice versa from the bottom up. I don't know, managing inventory limits is not a thing that I find particularly engaging, either in video games or board games. And I have to say that after playing Four Gardens, I appreciate the Red Cathedral a little bit more, because it reminds me a lot of the Red Cathedral in a number of ways. In that, it is a somewhat clever, puzzly, spatial element of acquiring resources, and then you move those resources onto specific cards in order to build them. But the Red Cathedral has a little bit more player interaction. It has more luck in the sense that you're setting things up for people largely accidentally. But it's got a little bit more engine building, although not quite, and a little bit of very majority competition. As it stood in Four Gardens, you have the lovely central tower, and I love that gimmick. It's beautiful, it's functional, it's very, very neat. You have to make sure that you situate it in such a way that it's not blocking your view of everything your opponent's doing. It's very well constructed. It was a joy to put together as well. But the scoring elements are, are kind of neat. But the only real player interaction you get is if you race up a certain scoring track really aggressively really soon, you can start shoving other people off that track and causing them to be unable to compete in that color. And that actually did manifest. I shoved you off one track, you shoved me off uh, one yourself. 
And that was interesting, but the rest of it felt very procedural to me. It's like, okay, I get the two water in the wood, I shuffle the two water in the wood off to a card. Again, kind of like some of my criticisms of the Red Cathedral, but I felt that the Red Cathedral has other interesting bits to, 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 to get me going. Very light, very nice looking, Four Gardens, Korea board games. I streamed a game of Game of Thrones Digital for the world to see. Full seven, seven, sorry, full six player game. And the, the, it was, you know, a sort of a challenge. They said, oh, well, yeah, we'll see you in four hours. But that being said, I got it done in an hour and a half. So that's oh, wow. not, with that's six, not with six humans? No. No, oh. no, that would be impossible. <laughs> and no, never would I play with six humans. That is crazy. Okay. Because no six humans would play this game. Oh, they might. But, <laughs> you know, getting through the technical difficulties, having six people play a digital version, I don't think I would want to go through. All right. But that being said, it went the full 10 turns right down to the last action, and it was fun. Everyone who's watching had a good time. Next week, we're going to be streaming Cryo on Saturday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern, so come and check that out. Game of Thrones Digital, this is like the second edition, and uh, I'm starting to like the changes they did to second edition a little bit more. They changed up the cards fully, not only the you know end-of-the-round cards, but also all the army cards, and they all have sorts of sort of different abilities and stuff like that. And some of the star orders are much, much different in second edition, and it makes the game much more interesting. At first, I was against all of this, but now it seems much more even and fair. So last Saturday, we streamed Spirit Island Jagged Earth again. The game did not go well. Uh, France handed our butts to us. I was Grinning Trickster Stirs Up Trouble, which was... I really enjoy that spirit. I'm not particularly good at that spirit. And I'm very conservative, so it's mostly... I, I think spreading a whole bunch of strife and causing ravages to result in nothing is me advancing the victory conditions, but not really. Uh, <laughs> Huey was Thunderspeaker, and Walker was Lure of the Deep Wilderness. As Walker said, we're going to be streaming Cryo this Saturday, but we've tried Cryo once two players, and I have to say that Cryo thoroughly delighted me. I thought that Cryo was a solid example of a really well-designed Euro game with a couple of clever bits and lovely components, and it's exactly the sort of thing that I'd like out of a, a Euro experience like that. It was designed by Tom Jolly and Luke Laurie. Tom Jolly is a venerable game designer who's designed WizWar. He also co-designed Battle for Rakugan, which we've talked about, which is an interesting design. Luke Laurie designed Dwellings of Eldervale, which we uh, <coughs> experienced and is uh, <clears throat> a game. But one of the things that Cryo does, which is something that I wanted to like about Dwellings of Eldervale, is it has this interesting idea with respect to tokens. When you get a token, you can either burn it for the resources, or you can slot it into your action board. And in Cryo, it's a standard worker placement rhythm that we've fallen into over the past few years, whereby you either send out a worker and do the worker action, or you take back your workers. As you are taking back your workers, this gives you an opportunity to activate certain action lines, which most of them start out blank, but as you put in tokens, that starts filling in formula. So, for example... If you take the double crystal token and slot it in at the bottom of one of the lines, and you take the single plant token and slot it in above that, if you take back a worker and slot it in that line, you can pay one plant for two crystals. And that was lovely. I felt like I was kind of building a tableau. I was building a little bit of an engine by using these little tokens. And at the same time, if I'd been inclined, and I think going forward in future games I would, you can change that engine relatively painlessly midstream because you can always then burn the token for resources again and get another token to replace it. There's a little bit of area majority, so a touch of player interaction, and not a whole lot of blocking, not a whole lot of anything else. But it uses cards in a neat way, in a neat multi-purpose way, and I, I, I think that as far as middleweight 
worker placement euros. So many of them are generic and bland and unsatisfying, but Cryo, I thought, was really nice and thoroughly clever in a number of areas. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to trying Cryo again. That's a, one mechanism that has come up a lot, but it's never really uh, been utilized or I've never actually used it myself where you can pull your workers back at any time. Usually we're always just throwing all our workers out and taking them all back when it's time. And, and there are certain elements on the board that, that incentivized you to take them back early. And I actually did. And it, I think I didn't win, but I still think it was an advantage at that time to do so. Yeah, the considerations with respect to tempo. I mean, other games have done it. So Dominant Species Marine definitely did Oh, yeah, did I'm saying like, there's tons, but the, the incentive was never there. It's like, yeah, well, you could if you wanted to, but you usually put out all your your tokens. Well, no, not, I, not in Dominant Species Marine, because yeah. it usually, you know, you, you're very limited to where you can You put, put yourself your, into a corner yeah, and then... Exactly, yeah. and you had no choice but to call back your guys. Yeah, there was actually, on the topic of player interaction, we were actually competing over... Well, to, not to put a too fine a point on it, how many of each other's colonists we could murder by <laughs> sabotaging various various gates? Because every time you pull back your workers, you trigger a token. Most of the time, it's just get a resource. But sometimes it's blow up something. And so if something comes up and it's where you're vulnerable, you have to be very, very careful about who triggers it and when. Very, very pleased by Cryo. And I'm very much looking forward to the stream. I hope other people like it too. We also got to experience a game called The Initiative, designed by Corey Koneska and published by Unexpected Games. So this is a sort of play out cards, move around, reveal clues, and play Wheel of Fortune. (laughs) Yeah, uh, so we've only played once. I don't, I hope, let me put it this way, I hope we're not in a position to fully evaluate the game because it's kind of an evolving campaign-y thing where it's scenario-driven and subsequent scenarios do different things. The first play left me very bored and I found it thoroughly unengaging and very pointless. And there's not many other pieces to add. There's definitely different ways they're going to utilize the cards. There are a few other tokens they're going to use. There's no hidden compartments. No envelopes to open. Sure, but I, I, I'm, I, you can do a lot with what's already there. Is, there there just, is. You know, with just numbered cards, you can have a great game. But so. I'm saying Seafall had the same problem, I believe. They started with such a mediocre system and waited so long to get it moving, and it really didn't I, evolve I into anything. I hear you. I, I don't think that the better, the uh, apt comparison is Seafall. I think the better, more apt comparison is Discover Lands Unknown, by the same designer, which started out as an overly simple, tedious mess and stayed an overly simple, tedious mess. Now, there are a number of people whom I respect that say very, very good things about the initiative. So I'm willing to believe that it gets better. I'm willing to, uh, I'm willing to hope that it gets better. So I'll try it. It was, it was brief. So I'm willing to try it another couple times oh, to see sure. if, it's, if it's got anything there. But I, I, I was thoroughly turned off by how pointless it was. You move to a room, you reveal clues... You put the clues up. You move to a room, you reveal clues, you put the clues up. That's it. That's the game. There you go. There's an element of the card climbing where in order to act, do an action, you need to play a card that's higher than the cards there. So you start to get into a, a, a bit of a problem until you clear them. But so that's it. Other than that, there's no game. And that was The Initiative, published by Unexpected Games. Hey, maybe that's what it'll be. It'll be like maybe the fourth play. Huh. It'll unexpectedly turn into a game. Huh. Huh. Is that wordplay? Is that what, is that, what uh, that was? I don't even know what this. is. I played Llama Dice a ton, and you got to come in at the last minute and play even more Llama Dice. This is designed by Reiner Knizia, 
It is put out by Amigo Games, and it is a fantastic, silly, fun <laughs> dice game. It is enjoyable to watch people throw dice and call upon the virtue of the Great Llama. I wish that there were slightly better ability to leverage the tempo considerations, because if you're the last person in, the risks start to accelerate. And so there's this issue of how fast you try to shed cards... Because the faster you shed cards, the sooner you can get out, which is nice. But by the same token, you're setting up your future rules to be riskier. But in a multiplayer game, and with more players you add, you have less ability to control the pacing of a round. And so you're more at the mercy of the dice. And in point of fact, I won exclusively because of a good roll. I wasn't playing particularly aggressively or anything. It's just I happened to get the one roll that I needed. And I was out, and that caused me to get... You have a very, very, very good run. I, look, I'm not complaining that in, in, in a dice game, it was a roll of the dice that caused to do it. But it's just, I can think of several dice games by Reiner Knizia that do similar things better. So there's Heckmech and Bratwerkmech, which is known in North America's Pecomino. There's Sushi Zok in Gokkelwok, which is Sushi Bar. Those are two poultry food-based dice games instead of llama-based dice games. There's also Yahtzee Free-for-All or Sixus. I mean, there's lots of great dice games, many of them designed by Reiner Knizia. So I enjoy it. It's It's good. But it's mostly enjoyable in the sense of, I rolled these dice, here's what happened. Well, I, p- I played a two-player for a few rounds, and it's very cutthroat, because you can just sort of see what you have left. It's even if you go out with seven, you look across the table, and they have like 14 showing, plus, you know, the, the llama pool, and you can just sit back and hope they bust. And it's very aggressive and, and really interesting at two-player as well. That's just it. I would like to try it at two-player because there, again, you are able to exert more control over the pacing of the round. So I'd be curious to see how it feels with two. And that is Llama Dice by Reiner Knizia. I get to play Good Puppers by Chris Cheslick at Asmati Games. This is a recently fulfilled Kickstarter after uh, the first shipment, true story, got claimed by the sea. Due to turbulent weather, many of the containers on a container ship went to the bottom of the Pacific and Good Puppers was among them. Now, in terms of full disclosure, I am personal friends with Chris Cheslick. I played Good Puppers back when it was originally called One Deck Doggos, before it was then renamed to All the Goodest Puppers, until its final current name, Good Puppers. I will also note for the record that I believe that each title has been less good than the previous title. In my heart, it will always be One Deck Doggos. (laughs) But anyway, look, I'm biased, uh, so I'm not going to say too much about it, but it's evolved in fascinating ways. It's kind of a tableau builder, where you're building up tableaus of the aforementioned puppers, and you're trying to bury bones. And one thing that's changed since when I first played it is now you can upgrade bones. And what that's done is it's blown up the area for dogs to do various things. So you can move bones between various dogs and various elements of the tableau because the powers of the various dogs get stronger as you have more of them. So you play more labs, the lab powers get stronger. You play more pit bulls, the pit bulls get stronger, etc., etc. And so where the bones are becomes very important, especially since as you upgrade them, they, they go from one point to two points, then to five, then to ten. And so being able to leverage those abilities properly, since they all trigger as you play them, becomes very, very, very important. And I really liked the sort of power combinations and timing considerations and order considerations about how to play these cards Cards shook out. The artwork is adorable. They are indeed very good puppers. It also has some cards that are definitely not meows but are totally puppers because you can tell because they have dog ears over their cat faces. And I was completely unprepared for how much I uh, enjoyed it after having played it previously. Not that I didn't like it the first time. It's just, you know, I thought it was a a silly little nothing. But as it is, it's a silly little something. So that was my first experience with the newest version, with the least good title but the best gameplay, Good Puppers. Good Puppers. 
I got to play a game called Codex Neutralis. This is a game that's on Board Game Arena. This is by Thomas Dupont, same designer of Denia. Uh, This game comes in a nice little tin. Uh, The cards look amazing. You sort of, you just play a card, draw a card. But all of the, there's, you sort of cover up the corners. You're creating this like lattice of of cards, and sometimes they have spots to put cards, and sometimes they don't. But uh, more likely, they'll have symbols, and you don't really want to cover them up. So you're trying to do this sort of weird lattice work, trying to do, and you have scoring conditions that come out at the beginning of the game. Either have so many mushrooms or leaves or birds, and then some other cards have some other different scoring conditions. It's nice, quick little you know card game. Definitely check it out. It is on Board Game Arena. Codex Naturalis. Played a couple of games of Calico. I wanted to try Calico because it won the Golden Geek, and I've heard a lot of talk about it. Specifically, a lot of the chatter about Calico has been, is this a very, very light game, or is this a very, very heavy game? Which I find a fascinating discussion. Not that I have a, a for lack of a better term, not that I have a dog in that fight, no pun intended, but because it really does leverage the different definitions that people have for that term. So the people who say it's an incredibly light game point to the fact that it is very, very rules minimal, which it is, but then again, so is chess. And the people who say that it is very, very heavy point to the fact that there are a large number of combinatoric decisions that you have to make, some of them front-loaded, and many of them have lots and lots of decision trees involved, not unlike chess. It's not a chess-like game by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just using that as, as a sort of touchstone for, is it a light game or is it a heavy game? So I can definitely answer to the question, is Calico light or heavy, with the response, yes. And it's precisely the kind of game that I don't enjoy. It is precisely the kind of spatial logic puzzle that is just not for me. You get these scoring conditions about how, well, if you place three of these kinds of tiles in a row, this thing is going to score. But while you're placing these three in a row, you have to worry about the scoring condition of the thing that it's touching next to because there you don't want more than three of a certain color, but you need two of another color and one of another color. And Oh, by the way, placing that tile also, affect, in fact, affects this other scoring condition. Have fun. And a lot of people love it. It is exactly the kind of game that people want to play. I love it. And the cats are adorable. It's very, very, very delightful. You make a hideous quilt at the end of it because <laughs> there's no aesthetic considerations about why you're placing these tiles. It's sure purely- there is. There's tons. They have all little diagrams on the scoring conditions. Very aesthetic conditions. What are you talking about? <laughs> yes, but the points you score are independent of how attractive the arrangements you make are. You know, you can have a pattern it's where... Very, very subjective. Point. Everything is... Well, very subjective. <laughs> you're trying to please the cats, right? Yes. But the cats don't care about color. The cats only care about patterns. So there you go. There you go. So it's a very complicated aesthetic mess. Look, Calico is extremely good at doing what it's trying to do. You play a tile, you draw a tile, that's it. You keep playing until the entire board is full, that's it. It's all scoring conditions. You can explain in about five minutes and then you're off to the races. Do I think that there are some structural elements to it that I would change? Probably. Like, there's only a three-tile available tableau and you only have a two-tile hand. Sometimes you're just going to gum up the works and you have to pay play tiles that you really don't want to. That part is fine, but... Near the end of the game, it can be unsatisfying when, as sometimes can happen, the tile that comes up that the pers- that your opponent or you desperately needed to complete this 15-point configuration, and it just miraculously appears from the bag and you get to snag it. Or it just so happens that nothing but purple tiles has been coming out for a very, very long time, and your opponent or you is the first that can leap on that yellow that came out w- first time in a in a dog's age. I just, I don't know... <laughs> oh. Sorry, it's just coming to me. I, it's just natural. I'm sorry. I'll stop. I'll, I, I promise I'll, I'll try to stop. But you know what we say about teaching old dogs new tricks. So that's not ideal, especially, again, in a game that feels so deterministic. For there to be luck elements like that in a game that seems so puzzly and deterministic is a little unfortunate. But 
Look, if this is your thing, if you like tiling in that way to satisfy these kind of puzzly conditions, Calico seems like a really, really slick design in that it's so minimalistic and effective. Yeah, I love it. I can't wait to play more. I'm very curious on how it all panned out, but I don't want to die. I got to play Anachrony. I played the base game with one module called the Doomsday mo- Doomsday module. And it just reminded me how brutal the worker placement is in base game Anachrony when you can't, like, you know, warp all around the board and, you know, take advantage of newly vacated spots. You know, the building spaces fill up very quickly and you realize that this turn I won't get to build and you'll have to go somewhere else. And the Doomsday module brings in this element of the game where uh, certain factions can completely save the world and certain factions want to bring the end of the world sooner. So you're sort of pushing these levers back and forth, trying to make sure, you know, you get the scoring that you want to. I thought it was very interesting. Probably wouldn't want to play without the warping again, but still it was nice to go back to Anachrony. It is designed by David Tertzi and published by Mind Clash Games. Finally, for me, I'm going to talk briefly about a game I didn't play. Uh, Rajas of the Ganges is a middleweight Euro game that's, you know, been kicking around for a few years. It was first published in 2017. It was reprinted last year. And a number of people say it's an okay dice worker placement thing, and dice worker placement is very much the kind of thing that I enjoy doing sometimes. So I tracked down a copy and started reading the rulebook. Red flag number one was that uh, for a game published in 2020, it was using the male pronoun as neuter. Red flag number two, it really doesn't seem to be at all embarrassed about the fact that it's gamifying sacred elements of Indian culture and various elements of Hindu religion. So at that point, you know, there are enough games in the world. I put it back in the box and I'm done with it. (laughs) That's all. And done. And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So I was watching a stream on Twitch today from the head portal guy, and he was sort of speculating about Gen Con because it's going to be a lot of the publishers have pulled out of Gen Con because it's going to try to push its way onto the onto the streets this year, 2021 Gen Con. And uh, so some of the big hitters that aren't coming are Asmodee, Lucky Duck, Yellow, Z-Man, Peterson Games, and Paizo. All of these people have pulled out. And he's speculating about how they just, they're just they just nervous about the attendance. How many people are going to be there because the booth prices are so insanely expensive that these big places never make their money back. And it's more of just like, you know, a, you know get your name out there, show off your new stuff. And they're worried about any volunteers, the safety of the volunteers, whether there's going to be any volunteers. And this is also coming off the huge success of these online conventions and what they had and the fact that you don't need these other types of conventions to get your name out there, to get it recognized and to get your stuff sold. And these online things are so much cheaper, just all around easier, no hotel rooms, none of this other stuff. Lee also talked at a bit at length whether or not this will have a ripple effect, whether if, if, if they don't come this year and not see much of a difference, whether they will just stay away for good. We'll see. It's interesting how the post-COVID gaming world is going to be. It's going to be interesting how the post-COVID world generally is going to be. It reminds me of similar thoughts expressed by Roby Jenkins about a lot of the miniature war game conventions that had either gone digital or been suspended. And he, he, he speculated much the same thing. Maybe going forward, we're not going to see the same kinds of events going for, uh, in, in the future. On that same topic, Roby Jenkins is going to be launching his next game this week. He of Horizon Wars and Horizon Wars Zero Dark. He's going to be publishing the retail version of his spaceship game, Horizon Wars Infinite Dark, is going to be on Wargame Vault 
It is expected sometime this week. I, for one, am very much looking forward to trying it. I'm looking forward to the expansion. Zero darkiest dark. Well, Of the darkness that's dark. Uh, yeah. He's got a brand and he's sticking to it. I, apparently. Yes. Uh, there's a game mark coming out. The Goonies Never Say Die. <laughs> right? Isn't that good? And, and the way it looks as though it's Is not- it by Prospero Hall? The Goonies Never Say Die is by Prospero Hall. I thought so, yeah. So, yeah, and it looks as though it's not sort of one of these sort of, you know, like apply the window dressing of the Goonies. It's just like it's. it looks like everything's there, uh, like a full adventure, rompy, Goonie goodness. So I'm hoping that uh, they sort of try to capture the essence of what the Goonies movie was. What essence would that be? I haven't seen the Goonies. Silly fun. Okay. It's a kid's, you know, well, those, those regular, you know, you know, young kid adventure they find a oh, pirate I can't ship. Stand, I can't and, stand those. Oh, well. I, I have never found children very interesting. I realize it's not a popular sentiment. Even as a child, I didn't find children very interesting. <laughs> Even as a child. Well, we know that Prospero Hall is capable of goofy fun because we played Fast and Furious. That's right. Mark Herman and Jeffrey Engelstein released uh, Versailles 1919, published by GMT. I absolutely adored it. I thought it was a great political historical game. They were going to be doing a follow-up, and it's going to be on P5, the P500 list for GMT. Triumvir, about the first triumvirate with Caesar, Crassus, and Pompey. And so, obviously, there's a three-player version, and they're going to be changing a number of elements to both reflect the historical period and to just evolve on the system. I am always a sucker for talented designers evolving already solid systems and so i cannot wait to see what triumvir has in store mark i got to see a movie called army of the dead and this is with batista and i guess simon decided they love it too so who better to do a zombie uh, zombie you know game than simon so now there's going to be a zombicide army of the dead standalone version i know you're surprised this only means that Zombie Bees is yet pushed back even further. Every which game, is, every game they release that is not Zombie Bees is a slap in the face to you. I agree, and I, for one, refuse to acknowledge such a blatant act of disrespect. It's just this: it's it's, it's no check from from Board Game Arena, no game from Simon. This is ridiculous. I'm Look, done. When I started, when I started podcasting about board games, it was for the money, and you told me that we were going to get rich. I'm sorry. I got this palaquin here and no one to lift it. It's such a shame. Finally, from me, Bruno Fiduti, the French game designer of such games as Citadel's Fist of Dragonstones and Dragon's Gold, uh, really stepped in it this week on Twitter and other social media. Not about what you think. It's uh, a little less weighty than many of our previous announcements, but uh, he's basically asserted that people who do not drink are fundamentally untrustworthy. Now, that would be bad enough. I don't drink myself, and I'm familiar. For decades, I've heard these tropes about how you can't trust people who don't drink. Uh, But he went even further, saying that you should perform business at a bar when everyone's inebriated, and his number one point of business advice is don't do business with people who don't drink. And a number of people said, you know, Bruno, that's awfully exclusionary to a whole lot of people of certain religious convictions, some of them religious racialized minorities it's also really exclusionary to women who many of whom have good reason to be nervous about conducting business in situations where everyone is expected to be inebriated and just exclusionary to all the people who don't like bar culture look if you and let me be perfectly clear if you like to have beer or any other kind of drink while you're gaming with your friends by all means fill your boots i have no judgment on how anyone wants to enjoy the hobby or indeed enjoy their spare time 
But the kind of peer pressure, distrustful nonsense was like, why don't you want to drink? What do you have to hide? This is his big thing. People who don't drink, he says, have something to hide. This is a direct quote from him. There are a few people who don't like alcohol, but I think most people who don't drink and don't do any drugs are mostly afraid it will reveal something they'd rather keep hidden. Right. And a, he's long, th- a long history of family, severe alcohol abuse. Absolutely. 100%. This is not like we are trying. This is the same drum we've been beating since the beginning. How do we make the hobby more inclusive? Oh, I know. Make sure that you definitely stipulate there's only one proper way to enjoy games. And what's worse is that it's the standard sort of aggressively anti-religious ideology. There's another quote from him. I don't consider any religion as a valid reason for anything. Good on you, buddy. Way to really reach out to people who are not exactly like you. My final note is simply to say I can. I do have a certain degree of understanding about why Bruno Fiduti would encourage inebriation at all gaming environments. Because after all, you have to be drunk to think his games are any good. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our topic of the week is... What prompts a purchase? That felt good. I like that. Dang. That was good. You, that, was, that was a good zinger? That was a good zinger. I felt good about that zinger. All right, so we're going to sort of divide this up into two sort of categories. And that is, how did you learn about it and what makes you want to buy it? So, Mark, everyone has their own sort of way to do things. So I've I, this time I didn't try to try to speculate on why other people buy board games. I just focused on what I do and here, here. why I buy Absolutely. board games. I'd just like to say, just as a, as a sort of prelude... I used to be a collector, and that kind of drove my purchasing decisions. Now I'm a a critic who has a shared collection with you, and so I feel like a lot of my purchasing habits have changed over the course of the past couple years, and mostly I'm going to be trying to address the information-gathering elements and purchasing decisions that I make under the the general category of my collector-type impulses rather than the specific things we do professionally. Gotcha. So I am a slave to the board game geek hotness, Mark. I know you are. <laughs> I pretty well on a daily basis will scroll down and just see what new things have launched up there very quickly or how long things stay there. And I will click on it and and this will lead into another thing, which is table presence. If If I get to see what the game looks like on the table, if it's a nice big board, everyone has their own player area, or if it's just minimalistic card games, so get an instant feel what the game looks like or feels like or what it entails, and then I can decide then if I want to look into it more, maybe look at a rule book or watch a video or something. It's weird. I don't pay, and I, I, I swear I'm not trying to set myself up as an iconoclast or above such things. I don't think I've ever looked at the hotness list ever. And that's one of the things that I didn't like about the new redesign on BoardGameGeek. Because obviously, obviously I use BoardGameGeek every day. It's, it's an invaluable professional and personal tool for me. But I don't like how more and more the front page is like m- more emphasis on the hotness list, more emphasis on presenting information using the same criteria that generates the hotness list. And I just don't find it a useful resource. On a side note, I wonder if the fact that they didn't they didn't sell board games on Board Game Geek, whether or not that would be like that. Moving on, <laughs> there is also Twitch. I haven't watched Twitch very. This is like just in this last few weeks when we decided to start streaming. I had never watched anything on Twitch before, but now for some reason I always have to have it on the side while I'm doing any of my work. And just, I think it's just one of these things where I'm hearing stuff about board games. Sometimes when they're not, you know, talking about 
play, what they're playing at the moment. There'll just be general discussion on board games. And that's the kind of thing that I love. And sometimes they'll talk about new games that are coming out or something they're excited about. So I can learn about games with Twitch as well. I'm in a position now where the only list that I regularly check is the GMT P500 list because it's just a good way to make sure that, again, things that are not naturally going to find their way to the front page of BoardGameGeek, either the dashboard or the, the new front page thing. Because, you know, look, war games occupy a tiny fraction of what's going on on BoardGameGeek, but I do like to see what GMT is putting out on, on the regular because if you want to keep your finger on the pulse of the war games market, GMT is a good place to start. And I don't have enough time to... You know, I'm not into ASL, so MMP is, is largely not a priority for me. And so that's the only thing that I have to go out and find. The other stuff that I get passively, just without doing anything, I complain all the time about all the emails you get every time any you've given anyone any money on Kickstarter. You're, you're, they've, they've got your claws into you for life, and they start bombarding you with emails every time they've got a new project. But I have to admit, I, I do find it helpful to be notified that when, when my favorite publishers and my favorite designers have new projects up on Kickstarter, that is helpful source. That is a helpful source of information for me. Well, Facebook is now doing the same thing because now there's all these different businesses and or sorry, air quotes that you might not see businesses that yeah. that uh, that will promote your game now. So you're getting all these Facebook feeds on all these new games that are now coming out on Kickstarter. And then there's seeing the game in your local store. Believe it or not, there are retail stores in your downtown area that sell <laughs> board games, and you can actually see them. Not in Ontario, you can't. And and buy them right there instantly in your hands. Crazy, I know. Not where we live. <laughs> the other thing I do a lot is uh, we both pretty well buy from the same online market, but they have they constantly update their new release section and their restock section. And that's another huge place that I see games that either, you know, miss my radar or, or I realize I didn't get the Kickstarter or don't have it yet. And I see them there as well. Yeah. My, my, sometimes people ask, how do I keep on top of the new releases? And honestly, whether or not you have a local board game store and whether or not you shop online, wherever you get your board games, just get in the habit, if you want to be on top of these things, not that you have to be, of checking their new releases on, on the reg. And so whether it's local store or whether it's on our online store, especially when that store happens to carry a diverse selection of things. Now, we live in a relatively small city and the local store does isn't going to get, like, for example, they don't carry GMT games. They don't carry Compass games. They don't carry DVG games, you know, all those things. So those I only get online. But back when I lived in Boston, back when I lived in Montreal, when I happened to live closer to stores that would get a little bit of everything, just checking the new release shelf on the regular was a great way just to keep up to date because regardless of the release schedule involved, I don't. I don't derive significant joy from getting knee-deep in upcoming releases when they're a long way out. I find it actually somewhat painful. Like, that kind of anticipation, I don't find pleasant. So, yeah, we talk about things that are coming up, but I, I try to focus on things that are going to be available shortly or uh, things that are evolutions on things that I already have. And so just checking the releases, especially if they carry obscure stuff, is largely how I find out what it is that I want to get. Another way is some joker on a podcast could tell you about it. That doesn't sound like a good idea. I don't think you should trust anything that someone says nope. on a podcast. And then there are awards that get 
presented by a bunch of different places. There's the Golden Geek Awards. There are the International Gamers Awards. There's the, the Kenner and the the, the Spiel, Dejar. All sorts of board game award shows or presentations or whatever you want to call them. And there, that is another way you can find out about games that you had no idea of. Like this, this even the 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 German awards this year, like the Robin Hood game and and the Teen Zombie one. I've never. Not even on my radar. Sure. Not that I'm going to buy them to try them out, but if, <laughs> if someone has a copy or I, I can get one, then I'll I'll definitely try to get it to the table. What if it got to the top of the hotness walker? No. Okay. And then Mark has the it, it, it has the phrase "people I trust have told me that it's good." Well, yeah, that's that's kind of a a, a bit of column A and a bit of column B. The most useful function. Uh, for board game geek, as far as I'm concerned, is the geek buddy function. If you find people on board game geek that have the same tastes as you, I remember exactly how I set it up at the beginning. I looked for people who were fond of the same euros that I were fond was fond of, but didn't like Power Grid <laughs> because Power Grid is one of those things that always comes up at the top of recommendation algorithms that I don't really enjoy. It has a number of structural elements that that aren't really for me. Uh, or in the case of wargaming. I could look at people who look at the same kind of uh, who like the same kind of war games that I do, but don't like the coin games. So I then find a number of users that have at least on some crucial elements similar tastes, and then and on any game you just go click the analyze button, and you can find what your trusted people have to say about something. Now, I haven't been particularly good at updating my own ratings and comments lately because I've been too busy, you know, screaming about them online. Uh, but just having a bunch of geek buddies who have ratings that you can at least reliably get an intuition for and who have useful comments on the game on board game geek can be more useful than anything else that I've experienced. It really is worth the time setting up a group of geek buddies who try things and who have similar tastes to you. And board game geek has a great news section. And if you just type in board game news online, there's all sorts of, sorry, there's two other decent sites out there that have regularly updated new release sections. And that's all I got for finding out where you can get information, Mark. Let us move on to what makes you want to buy it. And the top of the thing is, on my list is, is it a Reiner game? No, then hard pass. <laughs> I'm actually the, the, the opposite <laughs> way. So, so Reiner Knizia is my favorite game designer, but he releases so much stuff. And none of it's Drek, but a lot of it is very, very functional and procedural. Like from the box cover... Or from just a vague description, you wouldn't necessarily immediately be able to tell the difference between Sumatra, which is fine, and Whale Riders, which is amazing. Yeah, it's uh, we say, we go on and on about Reiner Knizia, but there are hundreds, like literally yeah. hundreds of games I have not even played or even heard of. Yes, and there are lots of Reiner Knizia games I play that I'm not a huge fan of. Like Llama Dice is cute, and I'm, yeah. and I'm happy to play it, but there's not a whole lot there. There, there are designers, however, and I was actually shocked at the 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 shortness of the list that I will buy pretty much anything they put out. Uh, and that is Matt Gertz, David Thompson, Roby Jenkins, Karl-Heinz Schmiel, and Richard Hamblin. Richard Hamblin is kind of a gimme, though, because Richard Hamblin released four games. The last one was in the early 80s. So he's not going to be releasing anything anytime soon. But uh, if miraculously he were to, <laughs> I would buy it sight unseen. Are there any designers that are must-haves for you? Or? No, I'm not a designer guy. Eh. I, just, I just, like I said, I go by... Back in the day, you bought whatever board game you could get. It's this true. is like from the beginning of time. You just if if because the distribution was so terrible back then. If you saw a board game you didn't have, you just bought it. <laughs> the 
is not that way anymore now. It is true. We have tons of games to choose from. Are there any publishers that, for you, you will automatically pay more attention to? No. Mm. So there, for me, I used to, back at the... Again, when I was a collector, I would go through these kicks where I would try to get a lot of games from the same publisher back when I was... I, I had more space to, to, to store and display games. And so, for example, I went through a, a huge Avalon Hill kick where I got a whole bunch of Avalon Hill bookshelf games. Almost all of those are gone, except for the aforementioned Richard Hamlin games and up front. But there are certainly publishers that I will definitely take a closer look at than other publishers. Because, you know, again, publishers have a, tend to have a more spotty track record. Like I, I talk a lot about GMT. GMT is one of my favorite publishers. But, oh, my goodness, they publish a lot of trash because they don't have a strong centralized editorial vision. They just work with small designers and sometimes they assign a developer. Sometimes they don't even do that. But there are publishers that I have a solid track record that make me always curious about their releases, and that is Mind Clash Games. Uh, granted, it's only been three games so far, but we'll see. Uh, Hollenspiel. Hollenspiel puts out fascinating stuff. I wish I could play more Hollenspiel games. The problem is they're so difficult to get a hold of here in Canada. They're generally speaking hard to get a hold of anyway because it's a very, very small print-on-demand uh, local publisher that does not have any interest in becoming more mainstream or widespread. They've taken almost perverse pride. Emmabel Holland is talking a lot about how she's she's happy about how few people get to play her games, which is a strange attitude. She's a fascinating person, but I disagree with her about a lot of things. Uh, and then there's Blacklist Games by the the Sadler brothers. And they haven't I haven't enjoyed everything that they've done, but I'm always curious about what they're going to do next. So sometimes publisher won't make it an insta buy like it will like I'll buy anything Mackerts puts out like definitely always and forever unless he puts out a series of stinkers, but I can't imagine that happening. Publishers on the other hand, all that it's going to get me is a serious look. So the thing I have down here is a theme that I can get behind. And Mind Clash, like when you said Mind Clash, that is something that they do. Every game they've put mm. out so far has a very interesting theme. 100%. Something completely different. It's not the same recycled stuff that's already out there. Uh, and like I said earlier in the in the podcast, an interesting table presence. You know what I mean? If it has very cool miniatures, lots of plastic stuff out there, then it will bring me into wanting to try that game. For me, it's more of a toy factor. Like... Uh... I'm I'm an unabashed enthusiast for toys. I've got a whole bunch of Macross toys. I like action figures. I like all these things. I, mean, I don't have a whole bunch of action figures anymore. But if a game has high toy factor, I will absolutely gravitate towards it. That's one of the reasons why I was initially gravitated, uh, gravitated towards Anachrony. That was the first Mind Clash game that I played. And it was, I saw those stompy mechs and I saw you put the workers in the backs of the mechs. I'm like, I'm sold. You've got yeah. me. Uh, the same thing was true of Fast and Furious. I mean, I like Prospero Hall, but some of the stuff they do is not necessarily uh, as as good as all their other stuff. But, you know, their Top Gun game had a, had a huge toy factor. So did Fast and Furious. So despite the fact that I hadn't watched the movies, I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll move little cars around. Yeah, and That's what I have next. Very next thing is silly, fun, but clever, right? So we have Fast and Furious, Top Gun, Llama Dice, things that are obviously silly but have this clever twist that makes it interesting to play. Any and all dexterity games. Oh, yeah. Well, dexterity games are one of the few games where I'm actually going to click on that images button on Board Game Geek first. You seem to value table presence a lot, which is legit. Uh, I often, when reading about a Euro game, don't look at the pictures at all. Or when looking at a war game, I don't look at the pictures at all. But if it's a dexterity game, you'd best believe that is one of the first places I'm going to go. Just so I can see whether it's got a cool toy factor. And of course, when it comes to dexterity game, usually just looking at it will give you a far better sense of how it plays than, say, your average other board game. And then I'm looking... When I at least get that far, I'm looking for something new in the rule book. Like they say, if it's a deck builder, I'm looking through the rule book to see if they're doing something new. 100%. With that. Or is it a, like a comeback nostalgia factor? Like 
I enjoy tons of plastic risky type war games. If they show me this game that has that, you know, I'm instantly going to be drawn to it and figure out, you know, are they doing something new? Are they going to do something that, you know, brings it up more modern? I, I couldn't agree more. If it's a deck builder, if it's a worker placement game, if it's an auction game, if it's an area majority game, if it's any one of these styles of games that I've played literally hundreds of times, I'd like something that's a little bit different from what's already out there. Or, again, an indication that my geek buddies say, no, 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 this is the one that, that, that elevates it. It doesn't do anything necessarily uniquely new, but it does it so solidly, this is the one you want. That, that'll be enough for me. Then there's also just, relatedly, just sheer novelty, the audaciousness of the design to do something so completely out of left field. That was definitely true, I think, to a certain extent, of Seal Team Flicks. That particular combination of genres is so delightful. I remember having the same reaction to More de Morosa, where that was the first game I encountered where you had to listen, and that was it was strictly audio cues about how far a cube had fallen. Uh, or like a 504. Like a 504, absolutely. Uh, or something like uh, Bushido. I still haven't played Bushido in years, and I really want to show it to you. Bushido, uh, the, the Way of the Warrior, or Der Weg des Kriegers, because it's, it's, it's in German only. But that's a, a sort of troops on a map game where the only way you get territory is by nominating one of your opponents to go attack one of a, another one of your opponents on your behalf. And it's a game where you cannot get anywhere without someone getting you there in the first place. So it's this bizarre combination of troops on a map with almost kind of negotiation and bending, uh, bending people to your will. I love bizarre and absurd combinations like that, even when they're not particularly the most polished games. Like Bushido has some serious problems with it that I've actually tried to house rule over the years. But it's still so audacious that I'm still going to come back to it. And I, I'm glad I bought it. I bought it exclusively on the basis, I, you know, publishers, a publisher that I didn't have a good track record with, designers that didn't have a, a track record that I'd played with. But I just saw the initial conceit and I knew I had to give it a try. And then when the art is so fantastically interesting or really good that sometimes you just pick it up on that basis alone that you know it might not be good but you'll enjoy the experience because the art is so interesting and unique uh dinosaur tea party and <laughs> what's the what's the stock market game that we just played i'll give you a license plate for five million drecknars excavation earth excavation earth drawn to it solely on the art style and how unique it looked that'll definitely make me a little more drawn to something like when i started looking at cryo the fact that it was pretty certainly didn't hurt. But I can't say that it's ever been a, a, a consequential element in, in deciding whether or not to purchase it. The only time I can ever remember buying a game on the strength of its art was Grimslingers. And I have no regrets on that score. It turned out to be something I very, very much enjoyed. You, however, spend a lot of time, and, and you say that you're just chirping trying to get under my skin, but I, I maintain that there's some truth there. You, you talk a lot about games' covers, you complain about games covers yeah, usually, sure. usually from GMP. Most, mostly just on a marketing standpoint, though, right? Because you're trying to get people to buy your game. You have one chance when that person's walking by. Like, sure. Other, otherwise, you're, if you're buying online or you're pre-ordering, how much of this you though? You don't care about what the cover looks like. You have the person walking by in the store and they see it, and and that's what the cover is there for: is to draw that person in and say, "I want to look at this game. I want to flip it over. I want to buy it." Sure. I'm sorry for trying to cut you off, but I've heard this spiel many times before. How much of this is Michael Walker trying to pretend as though he's talking about market forces versus Michael Walker secretly expressing his own frustrations, but just trying to project? It's like, well, you know, it's not that I'm motivated by cover, uh, by the quality of the cover. I just have these uh, 
marketing concerns about the publisher. I think you just don't want to play the game if it's got a cover that you don't like. I, I don't. I've enjoyed many no, GMT games. No, it's just other people. You're worried about the other people though, who I'm, are more superficial than no, you. That's I, what you're worried about. Exactly. Those. those okay. Those. Those. those you know. Thin-skinned, right. uncouth people who just judge a game on on sheer looks alone. I'm definitely so you not compl- one of those. So people. when you endlessly complain about how unappealing a cover is, it's purely out of an abstracted, dispassionate market observer, not because you, in point of fact, are a uh, incredibly superficial you, gamer. You got it exactly. Like I'm if a, if a glad if a, we clarified. If a cover this. makes me so sick that I can't tell the accident that just happened to the cover. Then that's an issue. All right. To me, it's less about cover art and more about box sizes. I am weak to the big game and small box phenomena. Most recently, Red Cathedral and Imperium of Contention, I think, would qualify. They're not, I mean, neither of them are incredibly deep experiences. We're talking about middleweight games that pack a fair amount of gaming experience in very, very teeny boxes with no wasted space. And everything is lovely and it'll just fit on your shelf in a lovely, cute little corner. And so that is definitely an aspect of being a collector that I still value because shelf space is, you know, you're always going to run out. Gone is the day of the coffin box. (laughs) It's true. Good riddance to the coffin box. And now duration is a big factor now in uh, in whether or not I'm going to buy a game. If it's clocking in like at four hours, then I'm just going to have to do a hard pass, regardless of, of whether I want to buy it or not. I sure. just don't have that kind of time. It's true. I still have a soft spot for a lot of four-plus-hour games, but by virtue of the constraints of the podcast, I know, especially under pandemic uh, conditions, once we're back to having a slightly wider pool of being able to play with, and, you know, we're going to be able to, to, to arrange events and see people across a, a table in a public space, then I might be able to get to, you know, that the new game of successors or any number of the other games that I've just been waiting on for, for a the, while. The, the new edition of Stereo Confluence. The new edition of Stereo Confluence. It's not a four-hour game. It's two hours. It just needs a high player count. That's different. I mean, that, but that, that was a factor that definitely influenced my buy decisions back in the day. When I was in a position where my gaming circles were much more constrained, and I guess this applies during COVID as well, if the player count is something that I can't accommodate, then that's definitely going to discourage my purchasing decisions. If it's a player count that does something traditionally at other player counts, like for example, just as, a, as, as an example of de- something that motivated my acquisitions recently, although it was a review copy, Scapegoat is a social deduction game that works at three or four which is not typically a genre you see that. And so I was very, very keen to experience that. And one of the reasons why I tried to buy it before we got a review copy. So last for me is just two sort of pieces of advice. One is if you see a giant all V1 game or a great dungeon crawling (laughs) game and you think that it is going to be the one, this will finally be the one you're looking for. This is the one that's going to bring all of your friends together back to the table and you're going to get this long campaign that you've always wanted. No! No, it is not. It is not going to be the one, okay? Never will it be that one. But you can try. You can keep filling your shelves full of these 1v all games <laughs> that sit there and collect dust. Go ahead. <laughs> Secondly is that there is a site, and this name on this site drives me bonkers. Anyway, it's called Board Games Land. So you can go to Board Games land and they have a fantastic flow chart of what game you are to buy next it'll ask you if it's for solo or multiple player and it'll lead you on this huge track and it'll tell you exactly which game you should get next check it out it is quite fun okay 
The last category of purchasing decisions is one that I haven't experienced in quite some time, and that's for people who are relatively new to the hobby and very interested in catching up on what in other contexts might be called the canon. You know, you've been a you've been a serious hobbyist gamer for a couple of years, and you're very interested in sort of catching up on lost time, and you want to see all those great releases that were released 10, 20, 30, maybe even 40 years before you started the hobby. And I very much did that when I got into the hobby. Some people don't, and that's cool. It's not something that everything needs to do. But, you know, for, for that new Euro gamer who's never played El Grande, you should probably try El Grande. You should probably try Tigers and Euphrates. You should probably try Raw. I'm not saying this is the way to be a hobbyist. I'm just saying that sometimes when people enter into a huge field and they've they've just shown up, they want to fill out their back catalog. And I think that's an entirely reasonable way to direct your purchasing decisions. But there, find your roots. You do, yeah, exactly. Find your roots. But it's the same thing for like, you know, movie collectors, music collectors, what have you. You know, if you get seriously into music when you're at whatever age, in 2020, you know, you might want to start of, uh, looking at some artists who might have recorded more than five years ago, that kind of thing. And in that case, you know, there are tons of people who are in a position to comment on, you know, what is the Eurogaming canon or what have you. Again, it's not I, – I, I don't like the term canon in this context, not for Walker's reason of hating the word. He just doesn't like the word. But I don't – it implies a certain degree of authoritativeness and in a way that sounds gatekeeper and exclusionary, right? This is the list of games that are accepted. And if you don't like them, something's wrong with you. And if you like something else, something's wrong with you. And or, you you know, I'm, I'm in a position of authority and I'm just going to stipulate that this is what you need to be buying and playing. Or else. Or else. No. But if you want to try to look at what are the commonly regarded classics – that's a legit way to gain it. That's a legit way to, to get started in your collection. And actually, the only way to actually enjoy these older games is if you're drunk. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, just roll to dice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bainey, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. You can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. You can find us on Patreon and on Twitch. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Peace! Thanks again for tuning in. Yeah, I was going to say, what happened to the end part? A momentary pause. You, you jumped the gun. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Now you may speak. Peace. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bicken. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 